Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Emo. It's short for emotional. It's also more commonly known as an offshoot of punk rock and one of the most maligned subgenres in all of rock. And for good reason. It's characterized by excessively sincere and pained, emotionally fraught lyrics backed by speedy punk rock that veered toward pop punk in the 21st century. Before he joined Fugazi, Guy Picciotto was in a band called Rites of Spring that, while nominally a post-hardcore band in the mid-1980s, they effectively created the template for emo that would be built on and followed through with by bands in the next decade. Rites of Spring were actually really good and inventive. Their one self-titled album from 1985 was one of Kurt Cobain's famed 50 favorite records. In the 1990s, El Paso, Texas's At The Drive-In crafted a more aggressive, lyrically abstract variation on the sound that made them huge in the rock underground until their brief moment in the mainstream sun in 2000. Weezer's second album, Pinkerton, from 1996, commercially flopped at the time of its release, but its raw sound and confessional lyrics displayed many of the hallmarks of emo, and it eventually became a cult classic that is revered to this day. Of course, emo eventually got watered down to annoyingly soft levels from the mid-1990s onward by wussy boy, pretty boy emo bands such as Sunny Day Real Estate, Jimmy Eat World, and Dashboard Confessional. Nevertheless, the commercial inroads made by those bands opened the door for emo punk to become mainstream rock currency, especially on rock radio by the mid-2000s, or the mid-naughties, shall we say. This brings us to the two most commercially successful emo bands of all time, Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance. They both hit it big at around the same time, and they both royally sucked major balls. However, of the two, My Chemical Romance's foul stench emits the strongest odor. Mixing their emo with shades of goth and prog rock, which sounds interesting at the outset, My Chemical Romance actually made a brutal, screechy, whiny, unlistenable mess of this concoction. They truly are one of the most unfathomable success stories in rock history, and their sheer awfulness really deserves an entire episode for exploration and explanation. Hence, the latest installment in the Curmudgeon Rock Report's shit series. 
join us for Why My Chemical Romance Are Shit. Now, Art, the uh, brilliant rock and roll writer Rob Harvilla, uh, he wrote a wonderful line and uh, one of the best I've ever read to describe the bombastic, over-the-top nature of rock and roll. Uh, Quote, suspend your disbelief, respect their audacity. It's a Mm. great line. Here's the problem, though. Uh, Harvilla, who is an old colleague of mine that I respect immensely. I actually think he's one of the best rock writers on the planet. Uh, He wrote that line about my chemical romance, uh, New Jersey's finest, no, not finest uh, band, my (laughs) chemical romance. Uh, He wrote that in a retrospective article he wrote uh, for the ringer. And uh, sorry, Rob, but my chemical romance is shit. And uh, here is why. While I can definitely suspend disbelief, I actually cannot and will not respect this shitty band's brand of audacity. Uh, Frankly, I think that their brand of audacity is trite. I think it's gross, literally. And I think it's remarkably insensitive and non-steeped in anything resembling empathy. How's that one for you, Art? Wow. I just think their music sucks. <laughs> yeah, I, never, I mean, I, I never thought of them as offensive. I just think they're they're just terrible. Let's talk about some good music, shall we? Yes, we shall. Uh, that rip that you hear in the background, uh, accompanied by that spooky Ed Wood music, is the rip in the space time continuum that will bring us to the other side of the universe, known we call it the parallel universe. Yes, it's a science fiction trope, but it works. And over in the parallel universe, rock and roll is still king. Uh, Long live rock and roll. It's on the billboards. It's in the stadiums. It's on the radio. Uh, We're all boogie, boogie, boogie and all night long. Uh, We don't care about the weekend. We don't care about Ariana Grande. And the stuff that should matter does matter. Uh, That's a long, fancy way of saying this is where we cover new albums or new-ish albums uh, by artists we uh, think uh, should excite you as much as they excite us. And we each take a turn here uh, and cover uh, new albums. We're we're both covering albums that have just come out uh, in the last uh, few weeks. And at least in my opinion, I'm not sure you share this one, Art. I'm yeah. thinking that these two records will be among the two best I hear all, all year. Uh, I agree with one of them, not the other. <laughs> well, of course. Uh, and and I'll, I'll get into why I say that uh, uh, when I take my turn but now it's yeah. your turn uh what are you talking about uh, on this episode Art? i'm talking about the new album by the men called new york city now brooklyn new york the men they're from brooklyn they've been around for a long time and since the late noughties uh this band has cut a wide ranging swath through the rock spectrum shifting from super aggro noise rock to poetic and angst-ridden alternative rock that evokes the replacements and REM to Springsteen and Tom Petty-esque heartland barroom rock to, most recently, pastoral folk rock. Now, the pandemic put a pause on their usual every-other-year release schedule, but they're back, and they are back with a rocket-fueled 1,000-watt battery up the ass raging beast of a heavy rock album, easily the heaviest they've been since their early years. Uh, New York City is aptly named because in sound and spirit, it really does harken back to mid-1970s, early CBGB's era New York punk. It's less talking heads, television, and Richard Hell, 
more the Ramones and the Dead Boys. But there's a twist. <laughs> Take the heavier side of 70s CBGB's punk and filter it through a decidedly grungy filter that brings to mind late 1980s, early 1990s Seattle before it became commercialized and commodified. Less Nirvana and Soundgarden, more Mudhoney and Tad. Uh, tracks like God Bless the USA just blast out of the speakers with an urgency most modern bands can't muster. And its faux patriotic sentiment cannot be seen as anything other than ironic. Uh, I is a blood-curdling sludge fest. Echo blisters at a 100-mile-an-hour pace with arguably the best punk riff any band has come up with this year. They haven't abandoned their heart-on-sleeve uh, bar band tendencies either, as Any Way I Find You is the best British pub sing-along that Dr. Feelgood or Ian Dury never wrote. <laughs> In a parallel universe where good rock music was still, or is still, part of the pop cultural zeitgeist, the men would be a staple on rock radio, and New York City is already a candidate for my list of top 10 albums of the year. Chris? Uh as it is on uh, my uh, perspective, top 10 uh, uh, album of the year list. Yeah, uh, great stuff. I love the uh, the opening single, Hard Living, uh, or Hard yeah. Living is awesome. Yeah. Uh, at first, I mean, you mentioned Seattle, which I think is a good call, because my in my head, I was thinking if X and, the, uh, X and Wire had a kid, yeah, yeah it might yeah. sound, uh, it yeah. might sound like this. Yeah, this is just a balls out kick-ass rock and roll record and it it harkens back like you said their early stuff from what 15 20 years ago almost now uh was really really this kind of propulsive uh sort of meaningful new york-based rock and so yeah like you said having them uh them uh, naming the record uh, new york city is just apropos and just awesome awesome stuff uh 30 years ago uh there's a couple of songs on here, probably like the first three or four songs all would have been like radio hits on right. rock radio. You sure. got to think, I mean, hell, if like the, uh, the Afghan wigs were getting on the radio back then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These, these guys certainly would have. And so that's a damn shame. Yeah, for sure. I really believe right. that. So Chris, oh. now yeah, you, you got some hip hop for us. Yes. Uh, we, we're doing a little bit of 180. We're doing, I guess you could call it a 180. However, in spirit, uh, maybe not. So uh, this is an album. Uh, I think it's a really, really exciting record uh, by a young producer uh, named uh, JPEG Mafia. And the rapper, and many of you folks pr probably heard of this guy, Danny Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, these two, JPEG Mafia and Danny Brown, they have teamed up on an album called Scaring the Hose, Volume 1. Can't mm -hmm. wait to hear Volume 2 because this is a genuinely exciting little record. Uh, it's 36 minutes long. It's uh, JPEG Mafia and Danny Brown uh, splitting the vocal uh, duties, but it, it really is a show case for JPEG Mafia's uh, production style, which is really hard to describe. It's thrilling. Uh, he may be now he's 33 years old, so he's not exactly a young, young guy, but he's one of the only guys in newish uh, new hip hop, this kind of underground, I guess you could call this sort of underground uh, hip hop that has a signature uh, sound of his own that you can actually somewhat call innovative. And I'm telling you, it's chaotic as hell, but it's riveting as hell. And it's a 36 minute shot of the musical equivalent of a ketamine LSD cocktail, uh, sample twisting industrial blender, man. 
You've got disco influences, trap house, dubstep, European industrial rock, punk house, acid jazz, complete with druggy flutes. And druggy flutes is an actual thing, folks. Uh, it really does sound like the sound of a bad trip and a dystopian hallucination. Uh, and it's again, it's just very abrasive. It can be very metallic, but it can also be very woozy, uh, almost like it's switching back and forth between codeine and uh, mescaline. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there's a song on there called Fentanyl Tester, which ought to give you a, uh, an indication of these guys' sense of humor. Uh, it's very, very boyish, very, very juvenile. Brown did this album, and it's a little too old for us to do it in the parallel uh, universe's vault. But yeah. 2011, an uh, album called Triple X. I Great highly, record. highly, highly recommend yeah, that. that that's one of the best. That's one of the best hip hop albums of the last decade. Yeah. Oh yeah, last last 15, 20 years for sure. And it's fantastic because basically it's an ode to Detroit to uh, Detroit uh, street level drugginess. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a wonderfully uh, darkly funny record. Now, Mr. Brown is basically sobered up since then. Yeah. Uh, and so he's a little cornier than he used to be, but he still has his moments. Uh, my favorite line on this record is they career like Whitney in the bathtub, sad as fuck, <laughs> which is just, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tacky. A few highlights for you folks uh, on uh, this record. Uh, there's aforementioned fentanyl tester, which is this mashup of uh, eight bitish video game keys, uh, doo-wop voices, swirling and echoes, uh, drum and bass. And a uh, sped up sample of uh, the vocal hook from Milkshake, the, the great Khalees uh, song, mm. which is a little bit of an ode to one of JPEG Mafia's heroes, uh, Kanye West. Uh, there's the title track, Scaring the Hose, where you get these banging loud ass drums and a catchy schizo vocal hook uh, from uh, Danny Brown. And you get this abrasive trumpet cutting across the beat, and it's just really tense and really intense. Uh, then you get the song, which actually ends the record, Where You Get Your Coke From, which has got this woozy minimalist verse uh, Congo thing going on. It's like just very like almost like a sprinkling Congo uh, or Conga beat, not Congo, Conga beat. And then you get this startlingly maximal organ and drum thing on the chorus. And it's like damn near avant-garde. So there you go. Uh, JPEG Mafia and uh, Danny Brown. Uh, Scaring the Hose Volume 1. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah, this album is more interesting than it is good. Um, to me, it's just like a long, tedious wash of static industrial noise hip hop. The majority of the, the majority of the tracks are overloaded with mashup samples arranged in this atonal way that comes across like a more tone-deaf Jay Dilla. <laughs> um, the, the best thing, the best things I can say about this record is that several of the songs sample professional wrestler edges, entrance music. Yeah. With the, if, if you can know me intro and uh, the title track is pretty good. I like the title track with its yeah. uh, jazzy saxophone sample and the, 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 that off kilter hand clap beat. That's pretty much it. Um, I look forward to the new Danny Brown album. <laughs> Chris here. We mentioned music writer and critic Rob Harvilla near the beginning of this episode. We need to point you to an amazing podcast that Harvilla hosts called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Produced and distributed by The Ringer, the podcast does what it promises. Harvilla and guests focus on a single song each episode with humor, precision, and a wholly unique, unpredictable perspective. 
I personally most enjoy an episode on the tortured history of the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony, in which Harvilla connects the origin story to the Stone Roses and Oasis in surprising ways. Go check out all 77 episodes so far of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Yes, I said 77 episodes. Harvilla apparently has more to say about the 90s than your average cat. My Chemical Romance. Let's talk about this repulsive band. Uh, Now, you would think this would be a pretty good formula, right? Queen plus The Damned plus Minor Threat plus Thursday. Very, very underrated band. Thursday with a smattering of Queensryche. You would think that would be okay, but they bastardize it. And boy, did they bastardize the shit out of it. And we'll talk about these first couple of records here in a bit once Arturo kind of explains and gives sort of a little bit of an origin story of this band. But here's the best thing I can say about the stupidity of these first two records. Now, mind you, this is a 25-year-old guy, Gerard Way, their their lead singer and songwriter. Basically, the thread that goes through the first two records can be described as suicidal vampires and or zombies on the run and in love who eventually go insane and really enjoy each other's suicides. Only only from the minds of a comic book geek would this come from. <laughs> yeah, oh, but but it's so surface level and so stupid and we'll get into that. It's it's you know you would think that this would be cool, but it's just so stupid and so disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, we we we'll, we'll get into that for sure. But yep. let's let's go do a little brief origin story of this band. Shall Make we stop? Start? Make it stop. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 served as a precursor to many negative and ugly aspects of American history. A reduction of individual freedoms and rights, the rise in aggressive right-wing xenophobia that we're still dealing with today, the misguided and misinformed war in Iraq that destabilized the Middle East, the utterly futile and useless 20-year war and occupation of Afghanistan. But perhaps the worst thing that 9-11 instigated was that (laughs) it supposedly inspired a young comic book geek named Gerard Way to form a band called My Chemical Romance. That's the worst thing to come out of 9-11. Oh, now, I, not, nothing I can say is going to top that, man. That was, <laughs> and that that is brutal. And su- supposedly that's true, but yeah, m- more on that subject a little bit later. But goddamn, yeah. yeah. Anyway, exactly, go ahead. exactly why and how nine eleven deeply affected ways kind of unclear. Was it the feeling that life could end at any moment? Seize the day by going after your dream because you may never have another chance. With a band this shitty, who fucking cares? What we do, what we do know is that the band took their name from the title of Irvine Welsh's book, Ecstasy: Three Tales of Chemical Romance. What we also know is that Way, as vocalist, drummer Matt Pellissier, and guitarist Ray Toro, got together to record demos in Pellissier's attic shortly after forming as a band. After hearing the demos, Way's younger brother, Mikey, decided to drop out of college and join the band as the bassist. Now, the band must have had some serious networking skills because they soon befriended Frank Iero, a guitarist for the punk band uh, Pensy Prep, who were on local New Jersey indie label, label uh, Eyeball Records. Mm-hmm. Eyeball signed My Chemical Romance 
Iero joined the band as a second guitarist, and very soon afterward, the label released the band's debut album, I Brought You My Bullets, You Brought Me Your Love. Apparently, there's always an audience for shrieky, derivative, juvenile emo punk because after offering free downloads of their music on the website Pure Volume and the social media site MySpace, yes, MySpace was a thing back in the day, uh, My Chemical Romance quickly gained a substantial online following. This drew the attention of Warner Brothers subsidiary Reprise Records, who signed the band in 2003 and the rest is dubious history. Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they certainly are uh, one of the uh, great MySpace success stories. I don't know if folks, uh, you know, folks our age and a little younger will remember MySpace actually, uh, looking back on it, it actually was a more enjoyable uh, interactive experience than Facebook in the sense where you could, you know, put in your own wallpaper, but you could also put in, I think it was like a Rhapsody player or something mm-hmm. where you could play music. Yeah. And so, you know, My Chemical Romance had a MySpace page and would upload the stuff they were working on. And lo and behold, uh, you know, it's only slightly better than OAR becoming big off Napster four or five years before then. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, th- that whole 9-11 uh, story and we'll get into it, like this first record. Yeah. So there's a song on this first record which we're going to talk about called Skylines and Turnstiles. That mm. to me is grossly offensive because Arturo and I have discussed this. We lived in Queens uh, mm. on, when 9-11 happened and it really shook me deeply. It's one of those things. I still have a hard time uh, talking about it in darker terms. Uh, there, there's a part of me that still wants to be patriotic. But for this kid who was an animator and comic book geek to turn it into this uh, thing of almost like a uh, a march of celebration into death where uh, he, <laughs> yeah, he turns it into a comic book death drama with like all these images of like, like skeletons rising to the sky and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I can't abide by that, man. And, and he, he pokes this in, in this record, this, this really juvenile record with like all of this uh, almost, it seems unironic uh imagery of suicide that you know it it satisfies him when the one he loves commits suicide and Mm -hmm. there's there's constant references to it on both of these first two records that man i just how in the hell could this band have ever gotten off the ground being this offensive and we'll get to that it only takes one song to do it (laughs) yeah yeah no shit yep (laughs) well you know what we're gonna do more than one song we're gonna discuss all four of my chemical romances albums unfortunately we're gonna have to for this episode right yeah lucky lucky us (laughs) yeah all right one so folks you may not realize it but we just had to take about a seven minute break because arturo had to go take a shit Uh, That's how painful it is to talk about this particular band, My Chemical Romance. Now, (laughs) let's get back to the rest of the story and cover uh, this first record, which, uh, what's the cheesy name again? I Brought You My Bullets, You Brought Me Your Love from 2002. Now, from the opening baseline of Vampires Will Never Hurt You, you know you're in the hands of the most generic, non-distinctive, tone-deaf, tuneless 
emo punk drivel band imaginable. Shifty chord changes and tempo variations cannot make chicken salad out of this chicken shit. Honey, this mirror isn't big enough for the two of us. Moves at a breakneck pace. Too bad engaging riffs, engaging melodies, interesting lyrics, and anything approximating good vocals are left behind. Uh, Head first for Halos inexplicably made it to number 80 on the UK singles chart with its bland stutter stop riff and Gerard Way's appallingly obnoxious vocal delivery. Seriously, from top to bottom, this album epitomizes what smart critics and fans criticize emo for. You would think it's a parody of emo punk if Way wasn't oh so in, wasn't so oh so sincere in whatever bullshit he's going on about. It really is an unlistenable shower of shit, this album. Chris? Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on that. Uh, I mean, just objectively, it's their worst record. But it's also one of the more uh, disgustingly offensive records I've heard in a long time. Or I I hadn't heard this album in a while. Let's just put it this way. Uh, I did hear it like 10 years ago or whatever. I, I don't know why. You know, Spotify subscriptions, so they allow you the freedom to do that. You know, so sue me. Uh, so this album is a disappointment only in the sense that a guy named Jeff Rickley, who was the front man of this really, really great band from New Brunswick, New Jersey named Thursday. Uh, he produced this record. Uh, the, what they were label mates, uh, Thursday were label mates on eyeball records with my chemical romance. And Thursday had a, uh, had a, a minor, uh, hit, uh, back in the, uh, back in the early aughts, I think it was 03 called war all the time. And so, you know, so they had their, they had their moment. And uh, if you remove my chemical romance from the equation, there was a Northern New Jersey post hardcore scene, which, you know, post hardcore sort of derisively became known as emo, but Thursday and saves the day were probably the two uh, most prominent and best known and best uh, uh, bands from that area. And Mm. so it's too bad, you know, Rickley gets associated uh, with this because let's just put it this way. My chemical romance does not deserve to carry that band's water uh, in the crowd (laughs) uh, at all. Uh, So where do I start? So there's a song on there called drowning lessons. Now uh, this is what can only be called mental illness metal. Yeah. Now there's a tradition for that. And I guess you could say that Gerard Way was an unmethed out, unwhite trash Jonathan Davis of Corn. Here's a, <laughs> here, here's a here's a secret. I much prefer Jonathan Davis. Uh, I think they both suck. Yeah, and you know, well, here's the thing. Not really though. Like I said, the first Corn record I've come to respect because, yeah, it may sound stupid where a grown man is in a horror core voice uh, is singing nursery rhymes. And playing bagpipes. Yeah, but but <laughs> a, but as a way of depicting child sexual abuse, it's pretty damn poignant when you think about that. Uh, there is uh, nothing remotely intelligent or uh, remotely uh, deep, non-superficial about uh, this motherfucker, uh, Mr. Way. So uh, these are lyrics from Drowning Lessons. It says, quote, these hands stained red. From the times that I've killed you and then, we can wash down this engagement ring with poison and kerosene. We'll laugh as we die, as we'll celebrate the end of things with cheap champagne. And so, yeah. yeah that, 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 that's basically what, yeah, it's, you know, glorification of suicide is one thing, but it's just like, you yeah. know, suicide chic. 
<laughs> yeah, but it, but it's never the glorification of his suicide. It's always uh, the glorification of the woman that he's obsessed with. Now, he has said in interviews, and it's pretty obvious through some of the lyrics and some of the imagery that this is classic vampire zombie shit of, yeah. you know, like I would rather, you know, have you die and, you know, and die, die, like die post-death than, you know, be in eternity with me. It's like this kind of like, you know, winky, winky self-loathing, but it's disgusting. And he, he has this other tendency through all, all this. He's one of these like guys that's like so lazy that he confuses religious language with religious imagery. <laughs> and uh, let's just put it this way. Uh, he ain't actually playing Pontius Pilate anywhere on this record. Mm. Uh, there's a song on here called Head First for Halos. And this is his attempt at capturing the spirit of Nirvana's wonderful ballad, Dumb. When, and let's just put it this way. The only thing about this song is that it's actually really, really fucking dumb. Like, <laughs> really dumb. And grossly offensive again, too. Uh, because, obviously... You know, Dumb, the uh, Cobain song is about him and uh, Courtney Love getting high and sharing their love in a codependent way. Right. Uh, but this song does that, you know, by having them take red pills or blue pills or whatever the hell those are supposed to be. And then ends it with the suicide. You know, hmm. we all know what happened after Nirvana's Dumb. Yeah. But he takes Nir the spirit of Nirvana's Dumb and he adds the suicide and the gratuitousness of that. And... I don't know. I, to me, maybe he didn't mean it, but it's fucking despicable uh, when yeah. I hear it, you know, being such a Nirvana. It makes a Cobain's one of my heroes. So when I hear that, I'm just, what the well, fuck? Well, I mean, I, I'm, just as I'm just as offended as Fred Durst having a tattoo of Kurt Cobain on his arm. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose, you know, yeah, Durst in his own mind uh, was probably, he thought he was serving the servants too. Although, yeah, he was, he was serving them like what, uh, like bathtub drugs and tattoos. Here comes the next album, Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge in 2004. Their major label debut and big MTV breakout album is, which is this one, is another slog of stupid, derivative, shopping mall emo punk. I would like to say faceless, but Gerard Way's gothed up, glammed up mug craves too much attention in the band. Yeah, baby video. face. Yeah. baby face. Yep. Yeah. I'm not okay. I promise was a big hit and I have no idea why it's just a shapeless, formless blob of teeny bopper solipsism disguised as self-righteous punk rock. Helena was the biggest charting single off the album hitting number 33 on the billboard chart. And like the previous single, it's all speedy tempos, boring ass guitar riffs and heartstring melodrama. The Ghost of You, the other big radio and MTV hit from the record, is wash, rinse, repeat as far as the MCR formula is concerned. Do any do fans of emo punk even care about carefully crafted songs with discernible melodies and lyrics that are both smart and heartfelt? Well, I mean, they yeah, yes, yes, they do, because there actually are bands in that genre that actually did all that. Not, uh, too, not too many, man. Not, not too many. This band did not. Yeah. Uh, certainly and, did and not. When, when people push back on me and ask me why I hate emo so much, I just tell them my chemical romance. That's why I hate emo. <laughs> yeah. Which by the way, and I, let, let me just uh, address that. Uh, basically calling my chemical uh, romance an emo band is an insult to emo. Yeah. Even because that's what, they, that's what they are though. They're no, emo not, not really. I mean, they, here's why they got lumped in as an emo band. It was because of I'm not okay. I promise. 
uh, which is the straightest in this period, at least those first records, it's the straightest they played it. It's uh, the least uh, of those gory or those stupid or those, you know, vampire, zombie, on the run, blood, guns, whatever. It's the least <laughs> of that. It's the most straightforward kind of pained uh, breakup uh, song on it. But it also, uh, m- at the same time, you got to remember, this is what, like, 04, 05? Around the same time is when Fallout Boy, which, who, which by the way, is a much, much, much better band. Uh, I know I know you're not on board with that, Arturo, but if I had to do my own episode, nope. I would I would do an in defense of Fallout Boy uh, record uh, uh, episode. <laughs> I, I, I'd rather kill myself than do that. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. But anyway, so this is the most Fallout Boyish uh, song on the record. Pretty much the only one that would would border on a classic uh, uh, Pete. Uh, what's what's his name there? Uh, Pete, Pete Wentz. Wentz. Yeah. And uh, the other kid, uh, the, the one with the talent. Uh, Patrick Stump, Patrick Stump, excuse me. Patrick Stump is a really, really talented songwriter. But uh, so this one kind of sort of approaches that, which is probably why A&R said, yeah, we got to put that on the radio. And so they get lumped in with Fallout Boy and Fallout Boy is unmistakably an emo, uh, an emo band. This band is basically taking uh, cheesy 70s uh, rock opera rock. And they're mixing it with glam metal and goth punk. And mm. it's just this, uh, you know, stirring tsunami of shit. Uh, they take all <laughs> these great, they take all these great influences and there's more Queensryche in this band than anybody would care to admit, including them. Uh, it's just like, the, again, it's a tsunami of shit uh, that historically gets called emo because of the place and time and the, and the competition. Mm. So, and the shrieky vocals. And, and the shrieky vocals. That's uh, that. So I needed to dispel that. They're not really an emo band because all of the emo bands you can think of are better than this band. On this episode, we pinched our nose and examined the atrocity of My Chemical Romance. For the next episode, though, we're going the opposite way and we plan to cleanse our palates by examining and even celebrating the work of a band that time has has seemingly forgotten, In Excess. From the mid-1980s up until the early 1990s, this band was ubiquitous on both rock and top 40 pop radio, with countless hits, especially from their 1987 blockbuster album, Kick. The hits dried up by around 1992, but one would think their massive critical and commercial success would have secured their status as a legacy act. Instead, the opposite has happened. It seems millennial and Gen Z music fans have utterly ignored or forgotten this once great pop rock band, especially when held up against contemporary peers such as U2, The Cure, and Nick Cave all of whom enjoy varying levels of reverence among younger generations of rock music fans. What happened to NXS? Why did their popularity wane? Why have they been forgotten? NXS superfan and Gwangju South Korea radio DJ Daniel Springer will be a very special guest as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you In Defense of NXS. Okay, now we move on. The next one. We're halfway there, folks. We're almost done. <laughs> yep. uh, 
The Black Parade from 2006. Now we arrive on their biggest album, the one that brought them to the arena rock stratosphere. Mm-hmm. They expand their vomit-inducing emo punk formula, at least the way I see it, to incorporate progressive rock, goth. They already had the goth image. Now they're actually trying to put goth music in here. Yep. And shades of heavy metal. Now, does it work? Hell no. <laughs> it's still atrocious. Uh, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, the song Welcome to the Black Parade was a massive international hit, going to number nine on the Billboard chart and even number one in the UK. And by God, is it awful. With its maudlin, almost piano ballad intro, it breaks into horn arrangement melodrama and more speedy, non-distinct emo punk nothingness. Imagine a group of ambitious 14-year-olds writing the most inane lyrics imaginable while musically trying to merge Queen and Jimmy Eat World. It's shit. <laughs> uh, Famous Last Words was the second massive single from the album, even going to number eight in the UK. Seriously, the Brits freaking yeah. loved this band. Yeah, they did. They <laughs> and, still do. Yeah. They still do. And uh, the, well, this, it, it, it isn't, it, this song is bad, but it isn't as bad as their normal fare. Make no mistake, it still sucks, and Gerard Way's lyrics and voice are still overbearing and overwrought, but the guitar interplay is at least interesting, and a discernibly interesting riff is somewhere in the mid-tempo mix. I Don't Love You has a surging intro and riff that I swear is a ripoff of Coldplay's Yellow. Yes, I had that in my notes, too. It yeah. is definitely a ripoff of Yellow, at least the first yeah. half of the song. Fucking, yeah. it, fucking obvious. It's Let's ridiculous. And it's yeah. probably Gerard Way at his most sentimentally schlocky. Yeah. His most his most tone deaf and at his most at his over emotive worst. Yeah, uh, and, and he has to rip off Chris Martin to do it. Yeah, I know, which is pretty bad. Yeah. Teenagers was the third massive hit off the album going to, you guessed it, number nine in the UK. And is the closest thing the band has ever come to being tuneful and catchy and sounding right. like, and, and actually kind of sounding like a punk band. That's you know, interesting. You know why? Works. Why? You know why? Because they stole the riff from T-Rex. Ah, there you go. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that one song cannot save this steaming pile of horse manure of an album. It's a concept album slash rock opera about a man dying of cancer and what he experiences in the afterlife. You would think such weighty and heady subject matter would elicit some genuine growth and depth in this shittiest of bands. But nope. Of all the big albums by big bands, quote unquote, The Black Parade, in my opinion, is by far the worst. Chris? Yeah. uh, Here's the problem with this record is that uh, the the stupidity... And the musical quality in some ways are mutually exclusive. Uh, there's a streak on this record from like uh, the, the the title track there, uh, Welcome to the Black Parade, all the way through Mama, which is pretty good if you're not paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you know it, 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 there are some good tunes. And there's, a, there's one song near the, near the end of the record, which I think is actually a fantastic song called Disenchanted which mm. is actually a celebration of cynicism that doesn't come across as like dopey or as, and there's, you know, no uh, zombies and vampires and dumb shit. It's just basically no <laughs> to cynicism and he plays it straight right. and it's a, it's got a pretty melody and it's like, Whoa, okay. So this guy's actually capable of not being a jackass. Uh, <laughs> but that's the problem is that elsewhere he's just a jackass. Yeah. Uh, although 
You know who disagrees with, with us, by the way? Who? The voters of the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time 2020 edition. As the Had Black this Parade. Album? Yeah, the Black Parade came in at number 361. That's ridiculous. And just remember that Bob Dylan's desire did not make the list in 2020. <laughs> okay. So, and, wow. And again, you know, there's lots of, basically this is like an equal opportunity theft record. Uh, so the song mama, which is, which is a, a lot of fun, stupid, but fun because it basically rips off uh, the sound and the style of the Bob Fosse musical cabaret with Liza Minnelli making a guest vocal appearance. Of course. Uh, yeah, because, you know, and Liza says, I love those guys. Yeah, you would, because they wear as much eyeliner as you do, uh, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, there's there's that. But they're also, and this is wonderful, by the way, uh, you and I might be two of the only people that would admit to being able to get the reference. But mm. the song House of Wolves, yeah, uh, no joke, uh, may actually be an homage to Kiss's Music from the Elder. <laughs> they, they're, not, they're, it, wouldn't surprise, it wouldn't surprise me because you know this, yeah. he's a comic book guy. Kiss are basically a comic book band. Yeah, and ni- nineteen eighty two. This was uh, uh, this was Kiss's last uh, ditch attempt to uh, in their makeup period to go prog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was their last ditch attempt to like save save the face paint. And right. uh, it's it's a it's an underrated record. It's actually kind of like fun theatrical metal. It's kind of like you know Gene Simmons doing his best to be Meatloaf. Um, yeah, go, go figure. That's two, ep- that's two shit episodes in a row where we're name dropping, uh, we're name dropping meatloaf, by the way. So bef- before we move on, and again, there's just lots of things you can say about this. I need to read this and you will laugh at this, Arturo. This is genuinely funny because of the self unawareness of this, uh, Gerard way. Now, 2022 Kerrang, which is otherwise I love Kerrang because they're so like unapologetically happy to be covering he- heavy metal. Yeah. Of all stripes. It's, it's a cute, it's a cute magazine, but they unearthed a interview with uh, Gerard way from 2006, published it in 2002, 2022. And so let me just read this and I'll like, it's part of the transcript, the questions and then his answers. So the interviewer says, when you've talked about the inspirations for the black parade, you've mentioned two masterpieces from the 1970s, Pink Floyd's the wall and David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And Way responds, I hadn't even thought about it until very recently, but it's almost as if we're trying to spearhead some kind of neoclassic rock movement, bringing the pageantry and the theater back, paying tribute to those old songs, not ripping them off, sure, (laughs) but a total tribute. We wanted to capture that glory that over-the-topness and that essence of classic rock in the 70s. And then the interviewer comes back. In terms of its lyrical content, The Wall was a heavy album. And uh, Gerard Way responds, Oh, yeah, it's coming from a place of a guy in a rock band playing giant shows and arenas, and there's groupies around, sex, and drugs. And yet to a 15-year-old kid with his parents on vacation, that being me, I mentally identified with the alienation in that record. You know, I'm not a rock star at, at that age. How the fuck did I get it? But I did get it. Yeah. And then uh, I'll just uh, I'll just share one one more thing to share before we move on. So a uh, critic named Tom Irwin or Irwin, uh, Stephen Thomas Irwin is his pen name. 
uh, he, he's been writing for all music since all music became a thing 20 something years ago. Yeah. And he's the only one of their critics I like. Uh, he is one of the more underrated and underappreciated uh, critics in all of rock criticism because he's basically made his profile on an otherwise kind of crappy site. He, his his review of the Black Parade is the classic example of damning with faint praise. Yeah, it's yeah, and that's why I was going to say it. He's actually got some really a really smart line in here, and you'll see why I'm bringing this up because you longtime listeners know that our last uh, episode we shit on the killers, literally why the killers are shit. So let me read this from uh, Tom Rowan. He says, quote, it was all quite reminiscent of how the killers set up Sam's town with endless name dropping of Bruce Springsteen and U2, but where the Las Vegas quartet wound up with an unholy fusion of these two extremes, MCR never synthesizes. They openly steal from their holy trinity, then grafted upon the sound they've patented. Often, it seems as if they've copied the wall onto tracing paper and placed it upon three cheers. The record before that. <laughs> the story of the yeah. Black Parade parade is nearly identical to the wall. And then later on, he has this great line, and I totally agree with this. This blew me away. And it's funny. Uh, he says, quote, The Black Parade does not feel like a revival of 70s Prague as much as it harkens back to the twin towers of mid-1990s concept alt-rock. The Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar. Mm. That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so it's way worse than both of those albums. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It, well, way, way, way worse. I mean, those are actually, I, I love both those records. So, yeah. So lots to talk about. Uh, do yourself uh, a favor, folks. Uh, download or go find Disenchanted uh, by My Chemical Romance and then physically block your children from ever accessing any other My Chemical Romance song after this episode. Please. <laughs> yeah, well, we've come to the end of their discography. Their last album, Danger yep. Days, The True Lives of the Dangerous Killjoys. Now, how do you follow up a concept album that was a huge international hit and placed you in the top tier of arena rock bands? Well, you take a page from the Pete Townsend playbook and do another concept album. Damn <laughs> this right. One, this one takes place in California in the year 2019. Remember, this album came out in 2010. The apocalypse has happened and a group of rebels wage war against an evil corporation. While it sounds like the premise to a Muse album, <laughs> a funny yeah. thing happened to My Chemical Romance on their way in trying to become the who of their generation. Now, there's a terrific YouTube series by one of my favorite influencers, Todd in the Shadows, called oh, Train great. Records. Train Records, right? Mm -hmm. In each episode in the series, Todd examines an album by a big name artist or band that either commercially bombed or was artistically terrible in such a way that it either altered the career trajectory of said band and artist or ruined their careers completely. Todd really should devote an episode to this album because Danger Days commercially bombed spectacularly. Yes, he did. Yes, they did. Yeah. In an epic way. Whereas the Black Parade went three times platinum in both the US and UK and sold four million worldwide, Danger Days went just gold in both countries, with most sales coming in the first couple of weeks of its release, 
and sold just one million worldwide. More ominously for the band, not a single song from the album was anything approaching a hit. After the tour cycle for the album, the commercial indifference to the record must have really stung the band because they actually broke up in 2013. Yeah. Now, is the album as bad as its lack of relative commercial success uh, suggests? Of course it is. This is My Chemical Romance, remember? Give <laughs> yeah. credit to the band for trying to really change up their tired, juvenile, yeah. shopping mall-friendly emo punk by injecting it with power pop and electronica. But power pop in this awful band's hands sounds like heavily processed, pompous, rah-rah cheerleader rock of the Andrew W.K. variety. I love See, Andrew W.K., so, so I can't stand him. <laughs> uh, his, his, his first record's a masterpiece, so oh, you know, get out of here. It's a fucking so, so step lightly. Horrible album. See the album's insufferable opening single, Na Na Na. It gets worse. <laughs> na 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 is like the worst song Andrew W.K. never wrote. Um, uh, yeah. The Only Hope for Me is You has some truly embarrassing lyrics and proves that MCR can take a subgenre that is defined by being instantly accessible, power pop, and rendering it void of anything catchy or engaging. Um, Sing, with its corny synth washes and wannabe rousing chorus, sounds like a horrible Pepsi commercial. Uh, <laughs> planetary, parentheses, go, uh, goes for outright 4-4 rhythm techno rock, but comes across like Disney Channel teeny boppers trying to be hip and cool. Yeah. It, it, it's pop rock that's trying a little too hard to be an earworm, but lacks the requisite songcraft. Yeah, basically um, it's muse without balls or, or exactly. sense. Right. Yeah. Um, Bulletproof Heart is just atrocious and it's overly earnest us against the world affectations. Like, geez, no wonder their fan base turned on this horrible record. <laughs> yeah. Well, what they did is, and I guess they grew up, maybe they felt like, you know, having a huge successful hit kind of freed them up from uh, what they'd been doing. And you got to remember Gerard Way was sobering up uh, in the middle of the making of uh, of that piece of shit uh, before it, <laughs> uh, before this one, uh, the Black Parade. He was, he was sobering up and, you know, he had uh, mental illness and, and drug issues. And so he's in a better place here. And so I guess you can say, yeah, fine. It's a, it's a, uh, silly sci-fi uh concept record but it's kind of weird for a band to go from ripping off queen the misfits the damned etc to ripping off bon jovi and muse from <laughs> from one album uh to the next uh it's just it's just stupid again and he just has this tendency uh, gerard way had this tendency of mistaking stupidity for glib ironic humor yeah uh, i mean he certainly was very 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 good at the former uh, you know, you see the song called Party Poison, uh, which is basically it's a let's have a great time before the world ends or we end up enslaved or some other bullshit like that. Who, who cares? Ha ha ha. I mean, it's a pretty rocking uh, track. Otherwise, it's, you know, dance rock type of thing. But yeah, but like I, I kind of mentioned it with the last record, these last two records, there actually is some enjoyable pop music and you know something assembling some pretty good musical chops it's just it's the the insincerity and the stupidity and the uh the, the look at me-ishness of it all that kind of ruins the uh, ruins the proceedings so you know it gets so bad uh with this record in terms of the lack of inspiration that there's a song on there called summertime 
And let's just put it this way. It's basically a ripoff of 1979 as performed by the uh, lineup on the Smashing Pumpkins album, Adore. Hmm. That's how bad it is. Uh, so 1979, if 1979 had been done during the Adora sessions. Yeah, like right when the pumpkin started to suck. Right. Uh, and so, but I do have to give these guys credit for one thing. Uh, this album ends with a song called Vampire Money, which, <laughs> which is- which Vampires is, are back. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was genuinely funny in the sense of, like I said, those first two stupid records- that have all that vampire zombie, you know, let's kill each other to, to glorify each other, you know, nonsense. Yeah. Uh, well, by th- this time they had rejected it. Why? Because the Twilight series had made it into teeny boppy money, uh, you know, had made it, you know, Hollywood was vampire crazy in uh, yeah. t- uh, 2010 when this record came out. That right, was, right. That was at the height of all that, uh, you know, Twilight with the, you know, the, the hot vampire versus the hot werewolf with Kristen Stewart uh, and her uh, amazing inability to not smile, uh, lighting, lighting up the screen. Uh, so, and then, but, you know, you got to give them fun. So they're kind of goofing on that whole thing and maybe they're, they're kind of having some fun, but, he was uh, way to the end of the band. He was completely, utterly self-unaware uh, to his dying day. Uh, he did an interview with New Musical Express in 20, uh, 2010 where he says about Vampire Money, he says, quote, originally what we did was take goth and put it with punk and turn it into something dangerous and sexy. Back then, nobody in the normal punk world was wearing black clothes and eyeliner. We did it because we had one mission to polarize, to irritate, to contaminate. But then that image gets romanticized and then it gets commoditized, which is an incredibly unself-aware statement, by the way, because- band is basically a pop band themselves. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, exactly. Well, one, they were a pop band themselves, but come on, man, you know, with all the, with all those like suicide, with, let's call it, let's call it for what it is. They're really murder fantasies. Yeah, uh, in the context of uh, vampire fanfic, yeah, uh, that's n- that sounds pretty romanticizing to me. Now, don't it? <laughs> now yeah. and then, when you do two records in a row, oh, that that record, okay, so that got us into the majors. Let's do the same fucking record with with a fall bo- with a Fallout Boy ripoff that gets us famous. But let's do the same fucking record. So not only are we romanticizing vampire murder fantasies. Now we're commoditizing them. <laughs> Correct? Yeah, so, I agree. I agree. So, okay, so fine. By 2010, he had grown up, he had sobered up, and he had uh, rejected the sort of the vampire stuff and the the, the cynical uh, cashing in on that stuff. Uh, but, man, he still didn't get it. He still yeah, didn't get no, it. It's just a lack of awareness. I mean, I I, I guess when he, when he uh, by 2010, you know, he was so famous and so big, that like certain people who become like rock stars of this level, they become unself-aware. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, Roger Waters is guilty of the same shit. Oh yeah. I mean, a lot, lots of bands are, I remember I had a, um, an interview long time ago with that guy from the gin blossoms, Robin, whatever the hell his name yeah. is. And yeah. you know, there he was, he was like basically stuck being a bar band in Tempe and he's talking about himself like he's world famous. So, yeah, you, you had some hits in the '90s, man. But come yeah, on, yeah, he he did. But by then, no, he he was he was playing uh, "Baby One More Time" during happy hours uh, out in Tempe. <laughs> yeah, I know. Imagine that. So, 
Yeah, I just here, here, here's the question, Chris. What are my chemical romance fans like? Like I know they definitely have a fan base, a pretty large yeah, fan base. Yeah, no, they do. And they, they, they were kind of they were the kids that you know, they're the disaffected teenagers. They were the you know, I mean, and Way has talked about it, that they've had fans come up to them and say, Hey, you know, your music saved my life. And so, yeah, you are talking about goth kids in the, in the classic sense, but, and I mean, this kind of speaks to, uh, what social media has the, done. The, the, goth, the goth was never in their music though. The goth was always in their look. Yeah. The goth, really. Yeah. The goth was in the image and like the damned was the, you, I guess you could call it goth punk, but it was more like, in, it was more close to the industrial stuff. It was more Bauhaus. Yeah. I mean, which Bauhaus in sound, but not in theme. Does that make sense? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't that they were never goth in theme, just look, yeah. but yeah. they did have, you know, when they, for whatever reason, these, these, what sound like pro suicide, uh, screeds. And then not only that, but you know, welcome to the black parade. That is a, let's face it, uh, for as dumb as it might be, it is a really good, solid pop song. I can understand why that became a big song. It, it, it does have, you know, that anthemic three-part thing will never go out of style. And so I can understand why, and then it's an anthemic kind of, you know, join us in this parade. Of, it's almost like join us in the disinfect, uh, disinfection. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, disinfected because it's fucking diseased, but disaffected. So, you know, join the dis- disaffected, you know, the, you know, the revolution of the, of the shit upon and the bullied, you know, get, you know, let's all, you know, go to, go, go to our graves, uh, you know, with all this. And so I can understand why they have that, that fan base and that appeal, but here's social media for you that, you know, these Gen Xers or excuse me, these Gen Zers and, and, uh, they have this thing that if it was done before 1990, maybe it doesn't count. They don't want to know about the past. Yeah. And so now My Chemical Romance's legacy is obviously spilled into the music, you know, similar kind of, you know, what you could call glam metalish kind of stuff. Uh here there are bands on the radio or bands coming up that were clearly influenced by My Chemical Romance. Uh you know, you are getting this this idea that they're a legacy band, you know, they're placing on greatest uh albums of all time uh lists as you know, as the uh, populace gets younger and more diverse. They're coming there. And so it's kind of like, look, here's a uh, way to analogize it. You and I were huge Pearl Jam fans, right? Yeah. Uh, if it hadn't been for Pearl Jam, I would not have gotten the inspiration to discover Neil Young and the Who. Right. 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 Okay. Who's better? The Who or Pearl Jam? The Who. No shit. <laughs> now, there, there are going to be uh, people out there that love my chemical romance. But then when you say, and yeah, they were, they were really influenced by the misfits. It's like, who the fuck are those? Who, who yeah. are, who are those guys? And it's like, yeah. you know, uh, but it's, it's like, uh, Oh, they were influenced by queen. Oh yeah. You know, queen is just all campy, but you know, queen does its own thing. And so they're going to look down their nose or whatever. So they don't, they don't see the lineage. And they, they don't, don't yeah, that, 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 that's another broader issue to talk yeah, about. And, I mean, yeah. Social media you know, has, it, social yeah, media it, has dulled critical thinking among younger music fans. It really has. And it, it's just it's this inability to just acknowledge that 
you know, history and the world existed before you were born, you know? Yeah. Well, but, but the, yeah, yeah, there is a certain cutoff and I don't, I don't necessarily see it as self-absorption. It's just for whatever reason. Oh, I, oh, it's definitely a symptom. Well, of there, there, there is some of that, but what it is, is it's this dismissal of history and it's that group yeah. think, you know, everybody's online at the same time and every, you know, everybody has, you know, it's that, that hot take culture. And so who cares about, here's what you want to tell these people. In 20 years, the next generation, they're going to dismiss your music, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they are. And so, yeah. so, and that's the thing. It's like the hot, you know, Tuesday's hot take is not the same thing as Saturday's hot take. Uh, who cares about five days ago? So we're, we're all up in this hot take uh, uh, cycle. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really doing a disservice to just history and appreciation. So if, if it's sure. like, you know, like, you know, there's a few music writers that I follow on Twitter and like, you'll get some fans sometimes that are like, yeah, you know, Neil Young is old and washed up and baby. Yeah. Yeah. They're just for boomers. And like, you know, the music writers, Brian Hyatt, who writes for Rolling Stone, is an old friend of mine, uh, comes back and says, you know, that's exactly like the stupidest thing ever. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. You know, it's like nobody under 60 listens to Neil Young. And, you know, and and so I, I try to chime in and say, hey, man, you know, if, if it hadn't been for Young, we'd have no Pearl Jam, which means we'd have no, you know, Nickelback or whatever. And so, yeah, yeah. so hey, I'm I'm 45 and I'm listening to Neil Young. He's like, yeah, whatever, dude, you're wrong. So, yeah. 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 Well, at that point, tell me exactly how are you right? Because basically in that argument, you're putting up salient points and the other that idiot who you're talking about yeah. is not putting up any points at all. Yeah, I'm telling you, and, and you know, like this is during the Joe Rogan, Neil Young fan, uh, Neil, Neil Young feud, and that ought to tell you something. Like these, these late twenty somethings, like early thirty somethings. I mean, I'm telling you, you know, I mean, if if we're living in a multiverse, we're in the dumbest timeline, right? And I think that reverence, continuing reverence for a band like this, where they begin to outshine the influences, and the influences become stuck in the rearview mirror. Mm. Uh, that's troublesome. That's well, troublesome. see, but, 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 but then my chemical romance are going to be forgotten too. Yeah, they are going to happen to them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because which, you know, in, I mean, 20 hey. years from now, the next generation, they're going to they're look back. Who the hell are these guys? You know? Yeah. And all, all these, remember my, my chemical romance are a millennial band. I mean, they're, they're, they're from a millennial, yeah, right. they're, they're a millennial yeah. generation band. Well, but, and, not, but uh, not even actually that's the, that's the pathetic thing. And we haven't talked about this much. Uh, Gerard way is born in 1977. Yeah, he's two years younger than us. Yes, and so he's 24 when he gets his supposed 9-11 epiphany, which again is just insulting as fuck. One way or another, it's insulting. Uh, And he does his zombie suicide uh, uh, tandem uh, when he's 25 and 27. So he's like an overgrown 13-year-old, you know? Mm, And so it's like, if if anything, it's kind of like an indictment of, of Gen X, of how stunted we are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hell, it took me till I was 45 to get married. Fuck, you know? So, there, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of stunted people born in the mid seventies. Maybe Mr. Way is one of them. So. Right. Oh well, boy. Chris, we well, have that, reached the end of this painful. <laughs> yes. That got headier than it had a right to be there at the, in the last five or six minutes. Uh, yeah. But yeah. So my chemical romance as a, as an existential crisis, as a rock and roll, uh, iconoclastic geek. Wow. Yeah. Who knew? So, uh, yeah, no, this has been fun. And, uh, folks, I know that we've done uh, a double helping of shit here in, uh, 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 this month, 
But we promise we're getting back to something way more positive on the next episode. And uh, uh, let's just uh, put it this way. Uh, before your homework assignment is to get back in touch with your devil inside, devil inside, devil inside. Yeah. My last line was indeed a reference to the Australian band In Excess. Sadly, they perhaps are a forgotten entity among younger generations. But darn it, the curmudgeons must resurrect In Excess and explain why we admire them so much. And Guangzhou, South Korea-based DJ Daniel Springer will help us do just that next episode. Tune in and learn about perhaps the sexiest band of all time. I say that as a secure married man. Come on, though. Let's face it. They really were that sexy. For now, Chris O'Connor and Arturo Andrade are out. Remember to join our Facebook curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock and to follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Take care, everyone.